13. Uh, this morning, um, I happened to look at a, a tweet from Steve Lawson that popped up on my phone. And uh, I felt compelled to share it because it said, uh, To those who preach, the Word of God is a sword that cuts both ways. I don't know if you want to say amen just yet. The Word of God is a sword that cuts both ways. We comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Well, I don't know about being comforted because I was quite afflicted, really, in preparation of this sermon. But I do hope, if you were afflicted, that you would find it a comfort from the Word of God. Our ongoing series into what Christians pursue has taken us across a range of pursuits, uh, all of which are lifelong. Whether it's prayer or holiness contentment or watchfulness, I hope you will appreciate that these are lifelong pursuits. They are not just to be pursued for a season. They are not erratic or intermittent. They are not optional or occasional. They are meant to be lifelong, habitual, long-lasting, permanent character traits that identify those whom God has called and transformed by His grace into new creatures. One of the ways in which this transformation is evident to the world outside, one of the ways it is made manifest in our lives, is through the pursuit and practice of worship. I say this because the gospel reforms us into what God intended us to be, and that is worshippers. He made us so that we would worship Him in spirit and in truth. Worship is the reason that God brought Israel out of Egypt. Worship is the reason that God brings us out of our sin. Worship is the believer's job description. Therefore, I'd like us today to consider the pursuit of worship. What does worship mean? How does one engage in this pursuit? Is it is, is worship something that we do on a Sunday morning? Is worship just what we did that Alex led us in? Is it singing? Well, let's see what worship truly is by turning to our text, which is Psalm 29. Psalm 29. It's a psalm of David. Um, the NASB has a, a title in there which uh, subtitles this psalm as the voice of the Lord in the storm. And I'll explain why I've chosen this text to talk about the pursuit of worship as we read. Please follow along in your Bible as I, as I read from the Word of God and read carefully and, and pay close attention because this is what God has to say about Himself. This is not David's opinion of who God is. This is God's revelation about who He is through David. And so if we want to be true worshippers of the true and living God, then we need to base our worship not on our imagination or our thinking of who He is, but on the basis of His revelation about who He is. So let us read Psalm 29 verse 1. Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. 
Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to His name. Worship the Lord in holy array. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. Verse 6, He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer to carve and strips the forest bare. And in His temple everything says, Glory. Verse 10, The Lord sat as king at the flood. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. The Lord will give strength to His people. The Lord will bless His people with peace. Shall we just commit our time to the Lord in prayer? Gracious God and loving Father, we, we want to be what you have created us to be. We want to be those who will testify and proclaim your goodness and, and, the, and the glories of him who has called us out of darkness to be in his wonderful light. And Father, if we are to do this, if we are to be true declarers and proclaimers and worshippers, Father, we need to know who you are. We need to know what this task requires of us. And we need to know what's in it for us, Lord. And we need, to, we need your strength and your enabling so that we would carry it out diligently, perfectly, and in a manner that pleases you. May this time be pleasing to you. May it be edifying to us. And it may it be for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we can examine uh, the text, it's useful to understand and get uh, a, a sort of background and a backdrop as to what, what is happening uh, just to give you some context. And I can see uh, three basic parts to this text. You may see more or less. Uh, that doesn't matter really. Um, the first part is a call to worship, a call to exhortation. Uh, that's something Alex did this morning where he called us all and he summoned us to worship. And so we see the first two verses over here being a call or an exhortation to worship. And then David follows that up with a reason for worshipping. Why should we worship? And he gives us a whole list of reasons which we'll go through. And then he follows that up with the result of worship and hopefully we'll see what's in it for us. As true worshippers, why should we worship? There is something for us. And so that's, that's the sort of flow of, and structure of the psalm so that you can follow David's thoughts as he takes us through it. Well, he starts off with his exhortation and then moves quickly to the reason and uh, it's, it, I, you need to sort of imagine uh, yourself on the sea. The voice of the Lord is on the waters. So you, you need to think of you, that you're, you're on the Mediterranean Sea somewhere. But if, if being on the Mediterranean gives you this idyllic blue waters, Greek isles sort of picture, then you need to cast it from your mind because the voice of the Lord is thundering. So this is not a calm, idyllic sort of picture it is, it, is, it is thunder, it is lightning, it is the storm. And so you're on the waters in the midst of a storm. Now I haven't been on the waters in the midst of the storm, I'm not aware of what it feels like, but I hear it is a very scary place to be. Because the waves, I mean you're not being rocked to sleep gently, it's a storm. The wind's blowing a great fury and there's thunder and lightning and so... 
you're not sure if you're going to make it, perhaps. And so David sees God, the voice of God in the storm, on the waters. And then he moves eastward onto land, where he talks about the cedars of Lebanon. And this, you might know, was, was, was famous. The, the, this, these magnificent trees growing up to almost 40 meters were highly sought after, were almost like international currency for Phoenicia. David sought the cedars of Lebanon. Solomon sought the cedars of Lebanon. Um, Egypt and Mesopotamia sought them because they didn't have trees. And so this is world famous. And so David is saying God is present there. The voice of God is present in the storm when you're going over this forest. And then we head further south and, and uh, we come to Sirion, where most likely this is uh, the, the Hermon mountain range on the border between Syria and Lebanon. And, and so he, this, David sees the voice of God there as well. Snow-capped peaks, middle of the night perhaps, dark clouds, angry clouds, but the voice of the Lord is in Sirion as well and makes Sirion skip like a calf. And then we keep going further south till we find ourselves in the wilderness of, of Kadesh Barnea. And you may know that from uh, the Israelite rebellion where they refused to go into the promised land. And the voice of God is there as well. If you've, um, if you've heard Woody Guthrie's This Land is Your Land, uh, you know, from the, from the Redwoods to California and from the East to the West, that, that song, that folk song, I think David's trying to do something over here. He's trying to conjure up images of who God is by referring to geographic locations. Whereas Woody Guthrie wanted to instill a sense of national pride in the people who heard the song, David wants to instill a sense of awe about who God is in the way he acts, in nature and the elements. God is everywhere and it's as if while we are on this journey from the sea to the forest to the mountain to the wilderness and finally we end up in God's temple, God is everywhere with us and it's almost terrifying us. He is awesome. His power is unimaginable, undeniable. You, see the, you hear the thunder, you, you see the bolts of lightning. Apparently, I, I was reading up on this, one lightning bolt can have a billion volts of electricity. A lightning bolt can heat the, area, uh, the, the air around it to, the, to a temperature of five times the surface temperature of the sun. It's pretty significant. And so David is, is imagining God in the midst of the storm in, 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 the, in this environment of great fury. And then we head to Jerusalem, to his temple, and there he sits as king. And just as outside, everything inside cries glory. And so we move from chaos to calm, from turbulence to tranquility, from, from a state of foaming fury to a state of hushed silence and reverence before God. The power of God is seen everywhere and His majesty is experienced everywhere. We move from a vision of God unleashing His might and His fury to Him clothed in royal splendor. He is King. And it is in this context and with this backdrop that God through David is calling His people to worship. Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty, 
Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to His name. Worship the Lord as you see Him dressed in holy array. Just to give you a bit of an outline, I'd like to examine this text by looking at three aspects or three components of worship. I want us to come away with a clear understanding of what worship is by understanding these three components of worship. Number one, the object of worship. Who is it that we worship? Who or what is meant to be the focus of our worship? Number two, the obligation of worship. Why are we meant to worship? What is the reason given? And number three, the outcome of worship. What is the result? What is in it for us? So the object, the obligation, and the outcome. Hopefully the three O's uh, will help you to remember that. And I believe that we can glean these points from throughout the psalm. It's not just particular points relating to particular verses. So as we go through each point, we'll pretty much cover a lot of the text of the psalm. um, And we see how the components are echoed through various verses. So number one, the object of worship. Who or what is our, is our worship focused on? And you will see that the object of our worship is the Lord. Lord in capital letters, all caps. And that is significant because that's the name of Yahweh. The object of our worship is Yahweh. That is the name that he gave to Moses when he spoke to him in the wilderness I am who I am. The God who is ever present, never becoming, always is. Never had a beginning, will have no end. I am Yahweh. And it is His voice that we hear upon the waters, and it is His voice that is echoing through the psalm. In case you didn't notice, I'll read it for you again. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord breaks the cedars in pieces of Lebanon. The voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The voice of the Lord makes the deer to carve and strip the forest bare. Another way to read that is, He makes the oaks tremble. And the forests stand exposed because of the lightning that's that's shining. But very clearly, the voice of the Lord is a recurring phrase used through this text meant to get our attention. When he keeps saying the voice of the Lord, the voice of the Lord, the voice of the Lord, okay, let's listen to the voice of the Lord. The object of our worship is an omnipresent, omnipotent deity who is everywhere. From the seas, to the forest, to the mountains, to the wilderness, to an urban setting in the temple, He is everywhere at the same time. He seems to be the one who is sovereign over nature because He strips the forest and He strips the trees and nothing stands in the path of His fury. That term that you see there, sons of the mighty, in the beginning, ascribe glory, O sons of the mighty. Now some people say that's the angels. But I, I read another uh, commentary which, which said that that's actually a reference to other gods. 
And David is saying over here that, you know, I, 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 I know that you guys worship other gods and other deities. They don't exist. But other gods should also worship our God. The worship of Yahweh is exclusive. There is no one else who stands before Him. Our worship is meant to be for Him alone. There are plenty of gods that are worshipped across the, the face of the earth. They also should bow down before God. Now, uh, a skeptic may say, you know, this is just a poem. It's just a song. And poems are about allegory and metaphors and synonyms and it's not real, is it? Well, it is a song. It is poetry. But the psalmist is using the term voice to describe the crash of thunder. So it's not really the voice because thunder doesn't have meaning as such. But don't let any of the creativity take away from the reality that the psalmist wants us to understand. He is singing about a God who speaks. The voice of the Lord. 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 He wants you to understand that this is a God who speaks. Why is it such a big deal for the psalmist? Why does he want to focus on the God who speaks? Why is speech such a big deal for David? Why should it be a big deal for us? It's a big deal because this God says, let there be light. And there is light. He says, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters and what he says happens and the heavens and the earth are separated. This is not poetic license. This is not the imagination of man. This is not allegory. It is fact. It is history. His speech is not empty words but authoritative commands. And when he says that the ground should sprout forth seeds and herbs and trees and plants, then it happens. And when he says that the, the, the sea should teem with and swarm with swarming things and, and flying things in the, in the air and, 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 and swimming things in the waters, it happens. When he speaks, stars appear. The galaxies and constellations and nebulae all appear summoned out of nothingness by His voice. This is the God who speaks things into existence. It's, it's almost as if the cosmos has a sense of duty to obey what He is saying. Let there be light. And let there be satellites, and let there be planets, and let there be the sun and the moon. Let there be. And it is. His talk is not cheap, but creative and powerful. This is the object of worship. This is who... David wants us to bow down before. It is the God 
whose speech is a summons for light and life and flora and fauna, stars and planets. He calls all these things out of nothing, ex nihilo. What had never been now is, because Yahweh said it should be. But then something interesting happens. After summoning the first five days of existence, of time into existence, the Godhead then holds a conference amongst themselves and they decide that they want to now create a creature who is going to be an image of them. But then you'd expect to hear, let there be man. As per the pattern that's been set already, but that's not what you hear. You hear that God is now breaking the pattern of his creation to actually create a creature from the dust of the earth. And then he breathes into him and it says that the man became a living soul. Why? Why this break in the pattern? And may I be so bold as to suggest that in breathing their own life of the Godhead into this creature, they want to endow him with something that no other creature has, that is speech. Why? So that the creature can ascribe to the Lord. So that the creature can ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. And ascribe to the Lord the glory due to His name and worship the Lord. No other creature has this ability. Speech is not the byproduct of an evolutionary process. Speech is, is the direct impartation of an attribute of God. He is the God who speaks. And so we come to our second point. The obligation to worship. Why do I say that there is an obligation to worship? Verse 1, ascribe to the Lord, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. What does it mean to ascribe? One meaning I saw from the dictionary is to credit or assign as to a cause or source, to attribute or to impute. For example, the alphabet is usually ascribed to the Phoenicians. Or to attribute or think of as belonging, as a quality or a characteristic, as in, they ascribed courage to me for something I did out of sheer panic. To ascribe means to render, to offer up, to extend towards. The King James uses the word give. Give unto the Lord. And so David is basically saying that there is a need to give unto the Lord glory and strength. What does that mean? He already has glory and strength. No, no, no. It means you are giving your affirmation that He deserves glory and strength. You are offering to Him speech which says, I agree that you are marvelous and splendorful, if that is a word. David is saying that our state of mind should be such where we, where, we, where we reserve our most gushing praise for Yahweh. 
where he's saying, be most excited about offering this praise. That, that the peak of your, of your being, everything in you, offer praise and glory. Not resentfully, not begrudgingly, but wholeheartedly, emphatically. We agree that there is a need for us to bow down before this person. We don't bow down to everyone. But there is a need. There is an obligation to submit, to defer. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due. Due. There is a debt here. Something is owing. We owe it to God to testify to the fact that He is great. It's not optional. It is owing to Him. Our words of praise is owing to Him. I hope you can understand that. I hope you can grasp what a great debt we owe because we do not worship all the time as we are meant to. He is worthy of utmost respect. If I can put it this way, the very existence of God creates an IOU that we are not paying. The glory due to His name. What is His name? His name is the sum total of His deity, the aggregation of His character, the synopsis of His being, the totality, the aggregation, the synopsis, everything says He is awesome. And we are called to ascribe, to give, to offer, to extend forth glory that is due to His name. Here, Lord, is my payment. I have, I have I've written this letter. I agree, I agree. You are awesome. I sign it. Why should I do this? David, what's the reason for me to do this? Because the voice of the Lord is on the waters. The, go- the God of glory thunders. Why should you ascribe to the Lord? Because the voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord splits in half the cedars of Lebanon. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness and makes the mountains tremble. You have an obligation to worship because this is a God who is awesome in power. He is not your ordinary God. He is not a human being. He is not a superman. He is altogether other. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength because the elements put this glory on display. The raw power and energy is undeniable and from the oceans and the forests and the mountains to the wilderness, Isaiah says the whole earth is full of His glory. 
His splendor is so weighty that every inch of the planet bulges with that glory. Such is the nature of God's glory and this is the name that David is saying that we should honor. The Lord sat as king at the flood. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. When all is said and done, when the tempest has died down, Yahweh is king. Even then. It seems to be that David is here bringing to our minds a recollection of the great flood during Noah's time. The mighty deluge that wiped out every single human being on the planet except for eight people. That wasn't Mother Nature. That wasn't climate change. That was a royal command. And when the rain had stopped and when the tips of the tallest mountains had been covered, Yahweh sat as king at the flood. There's no one there, Lord. I mean, just eight people. That doesn't matter. He is king. I I don't know, living in a democracy, how receptive we are to this idea of a king. We like to think of every man as equal and we look up even as a human king and we say, oh, he's just a human being. True. But this is not a human being. This is not a human king. This is the king who summoned everything with his word. This is, this is no ordinary person. When we, when we think of a king, we, or when, we, when we think of a democracy, we think of everyone has a voice. Equal share. Uh, my voice matters. And it does. But when you think of a king and when you think of a, of a, of a monarchy, I don't know if your voice matters. My voice matters. He is king. He is king. Not me. He is He is sovereign. He is the ruler. Do we understand that? Do we, do we really grasp the, the idea of a king? He's not Malcolm Turnbull. He's not a prime minister. He's not, a pres- he's not Donald Trump. He is the king of the universe. I hope you're getting a sense of the complete dominion that Yahweh has over the universe, over every speck and scrap of ground and every soul. David wants us to be impressed with God. Are you impressed by God? Does He captivate your your mind, your whole being, your heart, your intellect, where you're just saying, who are you, God? David wants us to realize that deep and rich tribute is owing to this God. Are we, are we aware that we owe it to Him to be gobsmacked by Him? Do we understand that? My debt is that I am not gobsmacked enough. Are we aware that we owe Him our most profound admiration? Are we aware that we are behind on our payments to Him? 
Now someone might say, you know, it's great that you find this God so awesome and, and glorious and wonderful and fantastic, which is fine, you know, but somehow I, I, I don't see it. It's fine if you want to worship this God and, and you want to think of this God as great and marvelous and all of that, but I find no reason. I don't see the God as great. What are we to do about such people? Is there a response? Is that a fair point to make? Turn with me to Romans 1. Please. Romans chapter 1 verse 18. And Paul gives us a great response to those who would um, want to argue that God is not impressive. Or to those who would say that, I, I don't really have this debt that you're talking about because um, I, I, don't see, I don't see God as, as being awesome and, and fantastic. Romans 1 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress. Now I want you to just keep in mind that word, suppress. The, I'm, I'm just going to give you uh, some Greek over here. Kata echo. The word kata always means to strengthen. And echo means to hold. So it's a strengthened holding. It's a, it's a detainment. Uh, it's, it's a suppression. So the wrath of God is against men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Why? Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. The person who fails to worship God is not failing because they fail to see His greatness. It is because they are genuinely suppressing the truth of who He is. It's not because they are genuinely unimpressed. Oh, I don't see it. No, no, no. It's not because you don't see it. It's because you suppress the truth in unrighteousness. How do I know this? Because that which is known about God, known, common knowledge, that which is known about God is evident within them. You don't need to look outside. It is evident within you that God is great. For God made it evident to them. God has done what He needs to do to give evidence of who He is and His awesomeness and His power to people. It is evident within them. The unbeliever is not someone who has not yet found a reason. The unbeliever is someone who suppresses the reasons. They know that God is great. But they are resentful about it. Remember Cain? Cain, well, you know, why, why, why the dumb face? Why the glum face? You know, if you offer the sacrifice, you'd be accepted. He didn't want anything to do with it. The one who does not worship is the one who sweeps the evidence under the carpet, who locks it up and throws away the key and then says, I find no reason to be impressed. What's the point of saying all this? The point is that nobody has a good enough reason not to worship. Worship is a universal obligation. For since the creation of the world, verse 20 in Romans continuing, for since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood though what has, through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they knew God. 
They knew God. They did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Failure to ascribe glory to God is not because He is found to be unremarkable or commonplace or mundane. It is because the heart knows that God is great but is resentful. It does not want to give Him glory. It does not want to bow down before Him. There is too much pride. There is too much ego. There is a complete refusal and a denial to accept the reality of God. I will not bow down. Why? Because they want to appear wise. They want to appear wise. I can't be bothered with little wives' tales. I can't be bothered with superstition. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And understand what they have done. They have exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God and replaced it with a temporary glory, if you can call it even, of the creature. What a dumb exchange. You are exchanging gold for dung. And you think you are wise. I'll ask the question again. Are you impressed with Yahweh? Do you see His magnificence? Do you see Him as dazzling? Do you see Him as grand? Is your heart crushed by the weight of who He is? Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to His name. To ascribe doesn't simply mean to speak forth words of praise. Because if those words are not accompanied by a uh, you know, a, a matched lifestyle, then those are empty words. Talk is cheap. So then a scribe means to give glory and honor to the Lord, not just through our speech, but through every moment of our lives. Thought, speech, action, attitude, behavior, everything. It says, let your entire life speak of the glory of God. To worship then, if I can give you a, a definition, is to conform the entirety of our lives to the reality of God. If you want a Bible verse, whatever you do, eat or drink, do it for the glory of God. We conform our entire life. Nothing is left out of our lives which we do not submit to this awesome God. How do, what do I mean by that? Well, God, God is creator. So I live in awe of Him. Whenever I see a sunset, I give Him praise. When I see a storm, I give Him praise. It's, it's as simple as that. Just When I see creation, I give Him praise. God is provider, so I trust Him to meet my needs. I don't freak out when I lose my job. 
I don't go into a panic and press the stress button when I find out I have cancer. I trust Him. I align my life and my attitude to who He is. He is holy, so I live my life according to His command. He is truth, so I reject every claim that is made that is opposite to that truth. He is love, so I spend my life mirroring that love. We conform every aspect of our thought and deed and speech and attitudes and behavior to who God has revealed Himself to be. And can I just add one more thing here? Yes, there is a, there is a personal aspect to worship. Me and God in private. Yes, there is that aspect where it's intimate. It's Him and I and no one else knows and that's beautiful. Yes, of course. But, you know, at the end of the psalm, God is where? He's not in the wilderness. He's not in the mountains. He's not on the sea. He's in His temple. What does that say to us? It says that God is there with all His people. And so can I just leave it with you that private worship should not just end in private worship. Private worship is not just, just an end in itself. It is a means to collective worship. When we worship in private, when we have our time alone, glorifying God, honoring Him, we just don't stay in our little huddle, in our little corner. We come, to the rest, we come and join with the rest of the people. Private worship ought to end in collective corporate worship. Where does all of this lead? And so we come to our final point, the outcome of worship. The Lord will give strength to His people, verse 11. The Lord will bless His people with peace. When the object of your worship is directed at the true God, and when you worship Him truly with the right motivation, understanding that you have an obligation, and you are happy to pay that obligation, the outcome is the Lord will bless you with strength and peace. What does it mean to find strength? It means that if you want to find comfort and assurance and protection and confidence, don't look to human sources. If you, if you are discouraged, don't look to people. If you are afraid, don't look to people. If you are in the midst of conflict, don't look to the people. David says, or the psalmist in one, Psalm 21, I will look up and, unto the hills. And the hills were the high places where all the other gods were. And, and the psalmist says, I look up to the hills. From where does my help come from? No, it's not these pagan gods. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. I hope you can find comfort in that. Our help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Some of us are really good with our hands and we can make carpets and cupboards and cabinets and you, what have you. Anyone who has created anything ever should be impressed by someone who has created heaven and earth. The Lord will bless His people with peace. This doesn't mean that your life is going to be peaceful. It doesn't mean that your life is going to be a, a bed of roses, that it's going to be cruisy. What it means is that, that you will experience the peace of God in the midst of the storm. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me. Your rod and your staff, what do they do? They comfort me. 
Peace is not the absence of trial, but the presence of God in the trial. When the floodwaters rise and threaten to drown you, know that the Lord is King who sits over the flood. There is no scenario that can overcome you. Again, what does it mean to be king? Sovereign authority. Completely ruling over. When you give God the glory that is due to Him, you will find strength and peace. If you're looking for strength and peace, be a worshipper. Worship is the key to peace. And so you have it, the object of worship, the obligation for worship, and the outcome of worship. The object is Yahweh, creator God, who created the heavens and the, and the universe. We have an obligation to worship Him because that is what He has created us to do. And what that obligation means is that we order our lives and we structure our lives around Him. He is at the core, He is at the center, and, and we are not at the center. And everything that we do is to, is to align our lives to who He is and what He has done. And when we do offer that worship, He strengthens us and blesses us with peace. But before we close, if we are fully to unpack the meaning of the psalm, we have to go further than when David went. And we have to go into all the songs that we've sung this morning about Yahweh. What happened? He became flesh. He takes on human form. The great I am who thunders in, 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 in David's psalm on the waters is actually sleeping in a boat in the midst of the thunder. And the people are coming and saying, what's wrong with you? You're sleeping in the midst of, a, of, of this great storm on the sea. What are you doing? And Yahweh says, O ye of little faith. And what does he do? He goes out and he rebukes the storm. And they are amazed and say, who is this? That even the winds and the sea obey him. Who is this? He is the creator. He is the one who has made them. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, but the world did not know him. John 1, 3 and 10. Why did John say this? He said it because that's what Jesus claimed himself. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. Why? For unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And a few verses later in John 8, he repeats the same phrase, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. And what happened? They knew what he was talking about. But they resented him. We will not give glory to a carpenter. Paul says this in Colossians 1.15, 
He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Verse 19, it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made Peace through the blood of his cross. Colossians 1. The man who hung on the cross is the man who created the universe. You know, this, this takes away any, uh, any excuse that someone might say, Oh, um, you know, I worship God, I just have a different name for him. No, no, no. Unless his name is Jesus, Prince of Peace, Wonderful Counselor, everlasting God. If that is not His name, then you are not worshipping the true Creator. He is King. He is Judge. All authority has been given to Him. He has been given a name that is above every other name. And I thought that that name was Jesus. But then I heard Steve preach a couple of weeks ago. He says, that name is yet to come. Our Lord is going to be given a new name by His Father, a name that is far sweeter and more glorious and and more superior than any other name. Why? Because His character is superior. That's what a name is. A name is an identifier of your character. And the character of Christ is superior. Why is His character superior? Because His work is superior. Being found in appearance as a man, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. This is God we're talking about. Yahweh. His voice is on the waters. His voice splits the cedars of Lebanon. His voice makes Syrians skip like a calf. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is, there's, the, there's the object of our worship. There is the obligation because He is Lord, because every knee will bow to Him. The Lord that David spoke about is Jesus Christ. The King of Kings and the Lord of Life. And we sang that this morning, didn't we? Who is he in yonder stall? At whose feet the shepherds fall? Who is he? Tis the Lord. The King of Glory. Tis the Lord of wondrous story. At his feet we humbly fall. And here's, we have to do something. Crown him. Crown him. Lord of all. That is That is worship where we give to Christ what is due to Him. We crown Him. We acknowledge that He is King. We throw ourselves before Him. We fall at His feet, acknowledging that He is King. He has the ultimate authority over us, and therefore we order our lives to come under that authority. And when He is the object of our worship, what is the outcome? The Lord will give strength, to His people, the Lord will bless His people with peace. Ephesians 1.13, we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places 
in Christ. Ephesians 2, 13 and 14, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off, what Jeff was talking about, you who, are far, who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Why? Because He Himself is our peace. Before we can close, I want to speak personally to you and ask, are you a true worshipper? And I want you to note what I am not asking. I am not asking, are you a religious person? I am not asking, do you believe in God? I am not asking, do you go to church and read your Bible? I am asking, are you a worshipper? Are you aware of the object of worship? Are you aware of the obligation that you have to worship? And do you enjoy the outcome of that worship? Is Christ the object? And do you recognize that you owe Him your worship? And are you blessed knowing that you are at peace with God because of His blood? I trust May we all be found to be true worshippers of this living God. Shall we pray? Our gracious God and loving Father, we, we want to take a moment to recognize your sovereignty. And Lord, we want to recognize that you are king. You are everything that you have revealed yourself to be in your word. And Father, our failure is that we have not done what is required and lived up to our obligation to bring you worship through the whole of our lives not just through our speech, but through our action and our thought and our behavior and our attitudes. And so, Lord, we pray that you would forgive us. We thank you that in Christ we have this forgiveness. We thank you that in Christ we are more than conquerors. We thank you that in Christ we are adopted as sons and daughters of the living God. We thank you that in Christ we can be brought near and be reconciled through His blood, and therefore become true worshippers. And so we pray, Lord, that in this week ahead, we would be mindful of who the object is of our worship, and how great He is, and how awesome He is, and how much worship is due on our part to Him. And we pray that through Your Spirit, You would help us to fulfill this obligation. And we pray that we would enjoy the strength and the peace that is the outcome and the result of this true worship. We ask all this in and through and for the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.